Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. Why walk when you can run, right? So I would run there, and that would be a way of Oh, that's what's over here. Now I see it. Work hard to run fast. That's the mantra of Marla Runyon. I kept downplaying my vision loss. I kept thinking it's just a matter of work ethic. Determination took her to the Olympics. Just the fact that this gun goes off and like if you can't react instantly to that, you're screwed. It's all about finding the balance and finding out what works for you. And today, she is creating opportunities so others can follow in her footsteps. Really, we all had the common denominator was a disability. But I, I really don't think we should be grouping people Disability can't be a common denominator. And the marathon, you know, is, I mean, I can't even imagine how many people run it. Just watching it is, is, you know, too much for me. Marla, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Dangerous Vision Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by talking about lions. Uh, when I was growing up in Northeast Philadelphia, there was this giant statue of a lion in front of the Arco station. I'm old enough to where there was a, uh, you know, an oil company called Atlantic Richfield Arco uh, gas stations. And uh, there was this Arco station on the corner of Bustleton and Byberry in Northeast Philadelphia. And there was this giant statue of a lion. I mean, it must have been, I don't know, 10, 12 feet in the air, although obviously much of that was the pedestal. And it said Lions Club of Northeast Philadelphia. And, uh, and then... I never thought much about it until I was reading your bio and it talked about the Lions Club helping you with your vision. So I thought maybe I would finally knew someone who could tell me what the Lions Club is. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person uh, to answer that question, but um, uh, they did have a role in my childhood. So um, I can address it in that context if you'd like. Yeah, let's. Um, well, that, that, my yeah. plan was to get you to talk about yourself sure. but do it. In a, in a more oblique way than just starting the conversation by saying, sure. oh, tell me about being blind as a child. Yeah, so um, so I, I grew up in Southern California um, and um, ha- I, was, I was born with normal vision and no one in my family um, has a vision impairment. Um, so there was no real, you know, expectation or even an, any idea that that would be something I would be, I would be dealing with. Um, and so I had normal vision up until about age nine and, uh, the onset of my vision impairment happened, uh, somewhat, somewhat abruptly in that it was the matter of being able to see textbooks and chalkboards in school, uh, in June, and then not being able to do that by September. So there was a, Mm pretty significant amount of vision loss, um, over the summer of that year. Um, this is back in the seventies, so I'm dating mm-hmm. myself a bit. Um, and so throughout the remainder of fourth grade, all through fifth grade, my mom became my TVI, my teacher of the visually impaired. Mm-hmm. And she was relentless in looking for any visual aid to support me, um, you know, whether it was magnifiers at the time or a monocular to see the chalkboard or whatever she could find. And this is, again, pre-internet days. So she's looking through a phone book. She's looking through the yellow mm-hmm. pages and sitting in our kitchen, just dialing phone numbers, looking for anything or anyone to help me. And she found the Lions Club. Um, I think it was the Ventura County chapter of the Lions Club. And 
So these gentlemen came out to our house one day and brought with them this huge machine. Back then it was, they are giant, known as a CCTV. Mm -hmm. And that was back when they were, you know, tray and camera on one side of the table and monitor on the other and took up, you know, six feet of space. Um, But this was the first type of equipment that was actually going to give me the ability to see print again. And um, as, as cumbersome and difficult as it was, it was, it was the only tool I had at the time that I could see a book. So were you like just the fastest kid in class from an early age, or was this something you had to work at? I was the fastest kid at an early age. (laughs) Sitting in the classroom was an, was, was just a big headache. It was, it was just books and chalkboards and overhead projectors and people's faces I couldn't see. And, you know, it's just everything about being in a classroom was Mm -hmm. a struggle. And it was like, as soon as I could get outside, I, that was it. That was like my outlet. That was my freedom. Um, you know, I would just run. And I think for me, especially with the type of vision impairment I had, getting closer to something because I have just virtually no distance vision at all. So I have like, I know relatively what's in front of me if it's five to eight feet away. But, you know, as you get across a room or across a playground, I have to go there to know what's there. And so why walk when you can run, right? So I would run there and that would be a way of, oh, that's what's over here. Now I see it, you know, so I think running and moving through my environment is how I learn to adapt. If you've got to lose your sight, running is probably a really good choice of, uh, of, of sport to be good at. You know, like if you were like the best ping pong player in America and then you lost your sight, you'd be like, <laughs> crap, this sucks. Crap, yeah. <laughs> I'm so it's good at ball, except I can't yeah. see the ball. But, but tell me this, with running, <laughs> is it a meaningful disadvantage even in running? Like my, my senses with sight, it's like, it kind of helps with everything. Um, and, that, and that, you know, yeah. I mean, I know runners do things like drafting on other runners and, you know, there's risk of getting tangled up. So tell us yeah about the challenges of, of uh, being a runner of state, because obviously you are at the very, very highest levels competing in the Olympics and everything. Um, and, and so uh, did, did you feel like the, the site was, was a, a, a small disadvantage, a big disadvantage you were able to overcome to yeah. get to the top or really by the time you got to your peak, it didn't matter at all? It's a really good question. Um, so my, my visual acuity now is, a, is somewhere between 2,400, 2,600, depending on who tests me? Um, it's sort. It's got a you know. Stargardt's has got a, it's, it's progressive, but a very mild progressive, in that it just continually changes over time. But it's pretty slow. And back, you know, by the time, like I said, in the tri- early childhood years, I was already at twenty two hundred by age ten. Um, so the majority of my high school years was I was my vision was probably right around that twenty two hundred, twenty three hundred, and then most of college a little bit worse, 2,300, 2,400. So I was adapting all the time, just constantly, constantly, and not always fully aware that things had changed. And so I wouldn't really even think about it to the extent because I was always trying to, uh, I, I, think of, I think of anyone with an impairment or anybody, especially with a vision impairment, you become the ultimate problem solver because everything and how you do get it through your day is a problem you have to solve. So whether you're in, in sitting in a 
Biology 101 class as a freshman at San Diego State in 1987, and he has five white erase boards. <laughs> And he's writing with his, his, you know, white or eight markers up and I can't, and I, and I just sit there, you know, you got that. It's like, okay, how am I going to solve this? How am I, it isn't always about in education, the, the assignment and learning the content, the, for us, it's about how am I going to access that? So then I can learn it. Right. So there's like this whole first step that we have to address. I know, you know, that I know this as well, that, the other students who have sitting there with, you know, 2020 vision aren't even aware of. And that's, that's the first. So I think that that problem solving, um, that, that became part of my personality and whether it was on the track or on a road race or in a classroom or in a job, that's just how I get through each day, each task, each everything. Um, so putting that into running, I, was um, I ran at my university, San Diego State, and um, I obviously could see the lanes on the track. So, and track racing is one of the most, I would say, it's simple and that it's, you just run and take a left, (laughs) run straight and take another left. (laughs) And, you know, you're, you know, in distances longer than 800 meters, you don't even have to stay in your lane. It's, it's just, you're dealing with a pack situation. So you just have to know how to navigate around people that are very, very, very close to you. So, so I think for, as a sprinter, which I was primarily a sprinter through my collegiate years, um, I never thought or believed that my vision impairment mattered. So that was my own perception of my vision impairment. It's not a big, I just thought it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. And part of that was a denial for surely a denial. But I think another part of that was a total lack of awareness of how much vision I didn't have. So what, when other people, my teammates would look up and they could look across the field and see someone, or they could look over and, you know, and I would look at them and like, you can see that far. And so all of those years, my early, late teens, early twenties was like a um, learning how much better everyone else could see. And and so it wasn't like I was sitting around moping, I can't see, I can't see. I was not, not, never really happened for me. It was almost the opposite in that I kept downplaying my vision loss. I kept thinking it's just a matter of work ethic. I, work the hard, I just have to work harder. I have to problem solve and I have to find a different approach to this, but I can do it. And then sort of this gradual learning of, wow, everybody else really can see a lot better than me. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. You know, what what do I see or not see when I run? That's the race that just means a lot. My my strategy was to win. But first, Life as a Blind Person by Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Sassy Outwater-Wright. This week's tip is about gift giving and the top five tech gifts for someone who is blind or has low vision. So in no particular order, my number one thing at this time would be some of the new gadgetry coming out of either Microsoft or Apple. You have a ton of new surfaces that just hit the market this fall. You have that beautiful new ridiculous MacBook that just hit. All of these things are accessible out of the box or with a little bit of modification or some software. And a computer is a powerful tool. Number two would be things that 
deliver groceries, things that deliver Amazon Prime, um, things that deliver things. Um, thing three would be virtual assistants. Alexa, Google. I probably just set your Alexa off. I'm sorry. Fourth thing that I would recommend this year for holiday gift giving would be apps that are um, based around online shopping. Things that allow you to browse and read reviews, read information, do your research on the products that you're looking for. Right now, I think one of my favorites is Instacart because I can look at five or six stores, I can price compare, I can price shop, and I can't remember the time, a time before this where I could do that as a blind person. My last advice this year for gift giving. It is audio technology, headphones. There are so many new kinds of headphones and um, wearables out there, such as Bose frames, such as bone conduction headphones. And when we're moving around in space, even AirPods um, from Apple, all of these things are brand new ways for us to get audio input without blocking our hearing as we're moving through space. We need to hear those notifications from our phones about navigation as we're navigating. We need to be able to talk to people out in public. We need to be able to hear our environment as we're traveling. So finding headphones that are not the traditional types of headphones is a big part of what we're looking for this year. That's Life as a Blind Person. I'm Sassy Outwater Wright. I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward to just running, you know, po- running more professionally when I, when I actually uh, running became my career ultimately. Um, so you know, what, what do I see or not see when I run? So on a track, there's lap counters, there's clocks. Uh, I don't see any of those things. Uh, would be really helpful if I could, <laughs> but uh, don't see those. Uh, when I'm lining up on the start line, let's say it's the 1500, which is the, uh, the event that I ran at the Olympics in 2000. Um, it's a, it's a, it's called a waterfall start. So it's like a, it's like a curved line on the track, three and three quarters laps, and so as I stand there on the start line, sometimes I don't even know who the person is to my left or my right. I, I can't identify, not being able to recognize people is really difficult. Um, but back then though, I could also, I would run against a lot of the same runners a lot. So same, uh, so I would recognize their uniform color or their physique or their running um, sort of their running style, their cadence. And I would start to recognize them that way. Like, oh, she has a brown ponytail. She has a blue uniform. She runs for Adidas. You know, so everybody at that level, you, you are, um, if you're fast enough, you get a, a contract. And I was on, first I was on an ASICS contract and later uh, with Nike. So your uniform is uh, each year they come out, each, each company comes out with its specific palette of colors for its uniform. And so you start to recognize people, or I would recognize people by what company they ran for and then knew what colors that company was using that year and so forth. But, you know, the gun goes off, we, we head out. So it's at the 1500 is a, is like the metric, you know, known as the metric mile, it's just short of a mile. So it's pretty fast and you, you, you stay together pretty much. Um, so when I did start running that event, I, I started realizing that once people started getting just a few meters ahead, not too far ahead, I started losing, a, losing my orientation in terms of what place am I in now? You know, am I in fourth? Am I in fifth? And is that because I could see movement ahead, but I couldn't tell if that was one, two, three. You know, I, I would lose if, it, if those runners got too far ahead. I didn't know what position I was in. 
And so, um, but I, I didn't have, that wasn't, I, I never attributed some of these challenges to not running faster. I think I, I, I was running as hard as mm-hmm. I could run and, and, and my performances <laughs> really <laughs> truly reflected, I believe, you know, what I was trained to run, you know, through your training, what your, what mm-hmm. kind of times you can put out there. So I, I don't ever look at these things as excuses by any means. I just, it's sort of matter of fact is that just, that's just what I had to contend with out there and find ways to, just to problem solve. And most races when I ran in the United States, uh, my husband, uh, Matt could, would be at strategic points, usually at the, at the 200 meter mark, which is the halfway. And he would yell out my splits cause he knows I can't see the clocks. Um, if I needed to, you know, hear mm-hmm. a split, if I, if, if, if it wasn't, you know, depending on the, the crowd, the, the stadium I was in or so forth, if I could be able to hear him. Um, but other than that, you know, it was just racing and, um, that's what I relied upon in that I would go into a race with a, with a plan and uh, an objective for that race. And, you know, yeah, that's how, how I did it. Yeah. One event remaining on Ladies Day and what has been a spectacular afternoon, and that is the women's 1500 meter presented by Adidas. And here is Marla Runyon. I talked to Marla this afternoon, and she said she's really working on this for speed work because she is going to be competing in the 5,000 meters at the national championship. So I've got I've got a bunch more questions about running and sports and Olympics, sure. but that have that that don't that may have nothing to do with blindness, or maybe it'll come up. I don't know. So first, tell, that that staggered start. I've always wondered about this. Obviously, the inner part of the track is a is a shorter, is a smaller you know oval, and therefore you have to start further behind in order to get the distances to be identical. But do runners feel that there's an advantage to one some of the positions over others is it is it better to sort of start out ahead but have that uh longer circle to run so to speak i mean not actually longer but you you get my point yeah uh, or 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 is it better to feel like you start up behind and you're and you're catching them one by one or or it's a two so the, different views the staggered start is more specific to sprinter to 400 meter and less 400 meter races, which is one lap, 400 okay. and 200. Okay. So those are, that's when it's truly a stagger. So you have to stay in your lane. Your start line is staggered off of somebody else's. And I think that that's a really good question. Ideally in the- in theory, the middle lane four, lane five are the best lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, in theory, when you have a championship race and, uh, you, they, they will take the fastest time as you qualify to move through to the final, they go into the mid inside lanes and then they work out from there. They have a, they have a system. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't, can't tell you exactly what that is, but that's tends to be an, you know, a pref, a preferred. Is that just because you can see the people four. on both sides uh, without turning your head? Yeah. Yeah. And also because as a sprinter running tight turns, if you're in lane one or two, you've got to run a really tight turn ah. and it, and that that would be a, dis, could be a disadvantage. And then, if you're out there in lane eight, then it's like you're running, no, no pun intended, but you're running blind. So your, your uh-huh. stagger is such that you're in front, you come off the start. You'll never, the only runner you're going to see is a runner that's passing. You. I see. So you can't gauge your, your speed off any other runner if you're out there in lane eight. So that could be deemed as an, as a disadvantage. But I will say that I think it's really uh, the athlete's preference. There are some sprinters that really like the outside lane mm-hmm. and there's some that like the inside lane. So I think it's a, um, 
comes down to the, the, the type of sprinter and the preference in middle distance, mm-hmm. which is the, I ran the 1500 and the, and then eventually the 5,000 and up to the marathon there's, we're not staggered, but we are on what's called a waterfall start, which is just a single curved line, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of, it kind of curves up a little bit as you move out to the outside lanes. And as soon as the gun goes off, it's a free for all. So I could, if I was out kind of on the wide edge of that, of that, uh, let's say you have a, yeah, let's say you have 15 women lined up on that waterfall start. If I'm even on the far outside, if I wanted to, I can, sh- I can make a, a straight shot and try to get all I the see. way into lane one if I want to. to come into but, the but, um, yeah, so, so it's a little, little more, yeah, in distance racing, 1500 meters and longer, it's, it's, uh, really, um, that that's the kind of starting that they use. And then the 800 is its own, its own special race and that you run the first, um, have to get this right. You, I think you run the first turn mm-hmm. in lanes and then you cut in. So it's staggered only for the I first wrote, 100 meters. No, it's super, so a it's super interesting. I, I wrote you. an essay once that I just sent as an email to a friend of mine who was a runner and never, never, uh, that it was back when I was young and shy. So I didn't think about publishing it, but it was during one of the Olympics might've even been your Olympics, but uh, about, about how the, the 1500 was sort of the best Olympic event that I, I just felt like this was like, the, yeah, I just felt it's the perfect event. Really? Well, the middle distance athletes are out on the track. The women's 1,500 metres, three and three-quarter laps of the track. And there is that uh, full field. First of all, it's like it's the right amount of time. Like the sprints are over before they're done. Yeah. And the marathon, right. you know, is, I mean, I can't even imagine how many people run it. Just watching it is, is you know, too much for me. And the marathon, <laughs> you know, is, I mean, so to have yeah. this event that's around four minutes on that seems like, and, and it seems to yeah. have a very attractive combination of where obviously athleticism is, uh, is dominant, but where strategy plays a, a huge role as well. Which is something that the sprinters in the field are not going to want. Runyon is perfectly happy to follow this pace because because she's getting ready for a 5,000 meters two weeks from now. But Regina Jacobs and Shane Culpepper likely want a little bit faster pace. Take a look at Jacobs going to the lead and Marla Runyon right on her shoulders. We talked about tactics. And I'm not surprised to see Regina make that move. Here comes Regina Jacobs. Uh, it, you know, uh, obviously there, there are these drafting issues, I, I gather, right, that, that there may be advantages to not being out front from the beginning because you might want to run behind somebody. Yes. And then as you say, these issues about when yes. to, to run to the middle and also just the general question of sort of it's I gather that, uh, you know, somebody said to me once that I can't remember if it was the 400 or 800 that they claimed is is the most painful of all running events because it's just barely possible to They're sprint all- flat out the entire distance. And yeah. so it's just pure agony. Yeah. But, but the you know, when you get to 1500 or the mile, uh, you know, that, that uh, you can't sprint it the whole way. And that means you have to be thinking at every moment yeah. what's optimal to do. So anyway, I pulled all these crazy theories about something I know nothing about. And so no, out there, good. but since it's your yeah. event, I thought I'd say to you, your event kicks ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just yeah. add to that, that they're all painful. So tell me about being a professional. So I have, I have two directions of questions about being a professional runner. One is what does that mean? How do you make, I understand if you're Usain Bolt, I can imagine a lot of ways that you can make money. People would pay a lot of money just to have Usain Bolt attend their race because people want to see him run. He's so amazing. People would pay for endorsements. You know, obviously, historically, there have been these things about amateurism in the Olympics and what you're allowed to be paid for and so forth. But I can see that if you are a uh, fantastic runner such as yourself, but not at that same kind of fame level, uh, you know, how do you make a living? Does the money come from where choosing the, the pair of sneakers to wear? Or is it the or, or is this government money that the, the Olympic Committee and others are paying? So that's, so that's what, that's, that's, 
So I got one set of one, one set of question about that, and then the other is about the the lifestyle and how much you have to practice over. So you you start where you like. If you are a standout collegiate athlete, or if you're even a post collegiate who you you're really on your, I would say in my case I was post collegiate, long post collegiate because my career was much later. I just found my own coach. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't have anything. I worked. Uh, ironically, I worked for the YMCA in Eugene, Oregon. I made. I made $5 and 13 cents an hour, <laughs> even though I had a master's degree because I, I wanted to, I got a free membership so I could, I could roll lift weights and I got a coach and started training. And the goal was to qualify to go to the U S nationals. And, um, and in 1999, which was a year that, um, I had again, no sponsor. I just had a, a local coach who was coaching some, um, kind of Olympic trials, hopefuls in Eugene, um, went on to nationals and ran very well um, and ran, finished um, fourth. I believe I was fourth that year. And but I didn't have the I didn't have the standards. So we went. So you have to, and also to make a team, you have to also not just be top three. You have to have us that have met the standards set by the IAAF if you want to go to world championships. So there's a time standard. So I was like two seconds off the standard. And the girls who had finished ahead of me didn't have it either. So that means if I got the standard and they didn't, I could make the world team, which is exactly what happened. So my first year of, of trying to move into more of that top level of racing, I went and made the U.S. Uh, world championship team unsponsored. So that means I bought my own shoes <laughs> uh, through cattle, you know, I uh, bought my own shoes, paid my own coach, paid my everything and just had a part-time jobs to just get by. Um, but as soon as I made the world team and in other cases, if, if it, whether it's a collegiate standout uh, athlete, who's just demonstrated, you know, uh, some, you know, run well at national, their NC2A, um, that the first thing that will happen is the agents find you, the, the track and field agents find you and they want to sign with you. And then they shop you around to different, um, companies. Like I said, it's the shoe companies, New Balance, Adidas, Reebok, and Nike and so forth. And then based on how well you've run, um, that one of those companies may come forward with a contract offer for you. And it will all depend on, again, how good you are and what your potential is. And young athletes are obviously uh, desirable because they could have long careers. Companies want you for a long time. So um, so the contract that you get with the shoe company is uh, usually includes a base salary um, as well. Like, and it's, again, you're not an employee, you're, you're contracted, you're you know, you're not an employee of the company, so you're, you're just contracted. And so you get a base salary, then there's time bonuses. So if you run certain times at certain distances, there's additional money to be made there. Um, and that's sort of the, 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 the ground level of getting into quote unquote professional track and field or track or marathon for that matter. It's the same thing. It's all about, you have to actually get yourself pretty darn good for anyone to notice you. And it's, it's when you get good, when you get to a certain level, uh, then people will start to notice you. The agents will notice you. The shoe companies will notice you. And then again, then you get a, you, and those, those contracts could be a little tiny, you know, a couple thousand, five, ten thousand $10,000 contracts to, uh, half a million dollar contracts. I mean, it's going to, and that's rare, but, uh, you know, you can get into six figure contracts for sure. If you're, if you're, if you're good. So, um, 
that's sort of how it goes. And, and sometimes, and then with that comes all your gear and equipment and shoes and racing at the nationals for me, um, my, my strategy was to win. So, um, or be, you know, top three, make the teams, uh, whether it's a world team or Olympic team. Um, and, and, uh, so in, when I made my first Olympic team in 2000, I was third. Um, that was my goal going in was to get third. And then from 2001 to 2003, I was the I won the national championship at 5,000. Um, and then at two, in 2004, I was uh, second. I was out leaned, out kicked, <laughs> out leaned on the, on the line and, and was second, uh, but made the team in, in the 5,000. Of, of the million things that I could never do uh, to be a top runner, one of them is the reacting to the gun. Just the fact that this gun goes off and like, if you can't react instantly to that, you're screwed. You're not going to be successful at this. Like, is that easy? To, is that just something that just like it came naturally to you? Or is it like, well, it didn't come naturally, but after a couple of years of serious running, then it, then, it, then it was natural? Or was it always something that was like a source of nervousness? I'd just be freaking out in there. <laughs> uh, it's just practice. I, I yeah. say again, you know, it's really that, that, that ability to come out, you know, that's more, really more sprinters have that really crucial, their start mm-hmm. is so critical to their race. Uh, when you get into middle distance and distance, it's, it's, not, quite it's as, not quite as, is, uh, yeah, it's not quite as uh, intense as it is in that, you know, trying to time it just perfectly. Cause you know, now if you fall start, uh, you're done, you're, you're out of the race. Well, they don't even give you one. No, no, yeah, wow. no second yeah. chances now. So you yeah. can't, you know, one false start, you're out. So yeah, it's practice, you know, yeah. Everything else. Well, so let's talk about practice. So how much practice a day when you were at, as a professional, you get it, let's say the year you were getting yeah. ready to either try to make the Olympics or getting ready to perform in the Olympics. Are we, is this, is this like 10 hours a day between weightlifting and this and that and the other thing, um, or do you just go and run like a mile three times a day and that's your three, you know, four minute uh, uh, jumps so, and you're done. <laughs> so like, if I think back to, so when I was after 99, I got my first contract and it wasn't a lot, but I, I didn't, ha- I, that allowed me to, um, I didn't work going in. I didn't have to have another, a job going into the 2000 Olympic year. Um, so, uh, and again, <laughs> I, I, I was living in an apartment. I paid 375 rent <laughs> and it's a really dumpy apartment, but it was right across the street from the running trail. So there you go. Um, I really lived in, within my means to, you know, as you say, because uh, this is all I, this is all that mattered to me. I was not, I'm not a very materialistic person. I really wasn't into that. I just wanted to run. And, and obviously making the Olympic team was something I had dreamed about as far back as 1988. And so here I was going into 2000, I was actually for the first time in my life, actually positioned well to make that team. Um, and so a typical day is a morning run on the trail of about three or four miles easy and then come home and stretch and eat a little bit. And then my training session would be in the afternoon with my coach and it would, if it was a track workout or it could be a tempo or, you know, road run or whatever. But if it was a track workout, we go to the track. So some of the workouts we might do would be like, there's always like you do, here's some of your to- like five times a mile, uh, or, or you do like miles with, or you, you go back and forth between a slower pace and a faster pace. So you do a combination of uh, tempo mile, I don't know, six times 200, and then a couple 800s or whatever. So there's the distance and the pace. It's all about 
the training is all about what pace you're running for that given distance is, is to determine what the benefit of that session is about. So, um, in the, before you get into the spring, you're doing a lot more mileage, a lot more uh, trail runs, tempo runs on the trail. Um, so my like weekly mileage was usually in the 75 to 80 range. And my long runs were about maybe 15, 14, 15 miles. And that's just for middle distance. So that, that wasn't like marathon training. And then, but the quality on the track was really, really critical to being able to be a good miler. So really good quality um, interval sessions. It isn't so much about the actual time. I mean, that's part of it, the time doing the workouts, but it's the time, all the extra stuff, all the little stuff. So then you go to the gym and you do your core and you do your stretching and you do massage. And if you have, I've got, uh, I've got something going on with my calf, so I got to see the chiropractor. So there's a lot of that, like constantly maintaining, you know, your body is your, is essentially your, your income. <laughs> Sorry, right. You know, you're, you know, so it's like, you're, you're so in tune to every little thing and it's all about feeling good and making sure everything's working right, feeling right so that you can put in a training. And so, and then just keep that consistency in your training going forward. So, so let's talk about diet. Did, did, did it feel like constant sacrifice? Oh I can't have the tortellini. I can't have that glass of wine. Uh, or do you well, feel I, like, because other people yeah. would say, no, the beauty is because you're like running and exercising constantly, you can no. kind of eat what you want. This is a really hard one to answer because there's so many uh, women distance runners with a lot of eating challenges. And mm. I, I went through that myself um, because you kind of look at who's running really well and you say, well, I look at her. She weighs this much. Maybe well, I should weigh that. If, I, if I weighed three less that, pounds, that would be three yeah, less pounds. I, I have to lug around. And <laughs> I, you know, I, learned, I learned the hard way. You know, I, I found that my ideal racing weight was about 118 to 120 and I'm five foot eight. Mm -hmm. um, but at times in my career, I, I allowed my weight to slip as low. So I know from my transition mm. from being a sprinter to a middle distance runner, I lost, you know, almost mm. 20 pounds. Um, but there's, it's all about, it's all about mm. finding the balance and finding out what works for you as in not trying to be someone you're not. And that took me a long time to learn how to do that because uh, most distance runners are, are small. Uh, they're short and they're light and they, you know, and I'm not built that way. I have to, mm -hmm. I have to, I had to learn that I had to find what worked for me and what allowed me yeah. to run at my best. So, you know, you don't eat whatever you want. Uh, you have to just have to eat smart, eat healthy. Don't, you know, uh, eat balanced. Um, make sure you have protein. Um, stay away from, you know, extra, you know, sugars and junk that doesn't really give mm -hmm. you nutrition. So I, I don't think there's a, I don't think it has to be like um, really scrutinized. But I think it just you just have to be smart about it and and stay hydrated as well. That's another um, important piece of your training is just that mm. nourishment and replenishment. You, sometimes you hear these horror stories about coaches and trainers putting a lot of uh, weight pressure on athletes, but especially on women athletes. You know, because of yeah. whatever Definitely. images people have yeah. in society of what it means. Is that, did, did, was was there a lot of that around the tracks back? you know, when you, when you were doing this? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a very systemic problem in the sport for women. And generally it's so hard to know 
where, what's, where do I need to be? Where, what works for me? What's, where's my best racing weight? And, and, you know, and like I said, I learned, I learned the hard way. I learned by doing it wrong and then doing it right. And then, um, and even when I did it right, I, I did it wrong again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you would think that I would have, once I figured it out, I would have said, Hey, this is what works. I got to keep with this. But I think it's that, you know, run, distance runners are typically overachievers, very high achievers, personalities, and very meticulous and very detail oriented and overthinking and want everything to be, um, they want to control and have, you know, you want to make, you want to be good. So you're, you're, you're thinking that I need to do this and this is what I need to do to get good. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's not. Um, and that's when you need that support team to be able to help guide you into those, those decisions. So one of my colleagues here at Harvard Business School rode crew in the Olympics, I think back in uh, like yep. 84 or something. And he, uh, 84, whatever, maybe, uh, no, I guess, I guess maybe it was 92. Anyway, he was there for the, uh, one of the famous basketball teams, maybe the original dream team uh, with uh, Michael Jordan on it. And so what he said is, you know, in the Olympic village, you don't get to hang out with Michael Jordan, but at the opening ceremonies, everybody's there. And so all these, you know, athletes went up to like go and talk to Jordan and, and you know, Barkley and all these famous. Uh, superstars. And he said, but there are so many incredible athletes at the Olympics that that meant that he got the opportunity to go up and have like a half hour conversation with Jim Currier, the famous tennis player, uh, because everybody <laughs> yeah. else was paying attention to Michael Jordan. Um, do you have any good stories of uh, the kind of people you get to hang out with at the Olympics? <laughs> uh, I'll answer that with, I feel a little bit like, uh, you know, the movie Forrest Gump. <laughs> yes. So you know how he, he throughout his the journey, of course, that's a fictional story, but how he just sort of uh, keeps popping up against, you know, all these these uh, sort of epic moments in time and meeting all these famous people. And somehow I feel a little bit like that in my career. And so I won't specifically say the Olympics themselves, but some of the athletes that I had, I would say, you know, the, the, the privilege or uh, opportunity to meet included uh, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, Back in the 1990s, obviously, uh, the gold medalist in the heptathlon, one of the greatest female athletes of all time. I actually raced against her in the same heat of the 100-meter hurdles at the Olympic trials in 1996. Mm -hmm. um, another, then if I think about, that's in the sprint world. And then if I move into my middle distance, you know, uh, distance land, I, I got to run against Tegla LaRoop. Uh, Tegla was one of the first She's Kenyan woman, first woman uh, ever to break 220 in the marathon, mm. and uh, got to do a cool down run. You know, we ran in this, we ran a race together um, uh, in in Europe, and got to warm up and cool down with her, and that was uh, a thrill. I also um, the the famous Sonia Sullivan um, from Ireland. So Sonia is one of the, a legend of the sport, and um, at middle distance at 3,000, 5,000, the silver medalist. Uh, from Sydney at 5,000. And so I've raced Sonia back in 2002. Um, even uh, Margaret Akayo, uh, world champion marathoner, I got to, um, both her and I raced a couple marathons together and we were both with Nike. So we had to do a couple events together. And um, even though we were there together, I said, could I have your autograph? <laughs> <laughs> so, was, uh, you know, um, so it's just, I think about, those times and just those are just a few athletes um, that I that I, I got to to know or 
you know, whether I raced with them or got to even hang out with them and to feel like, you know, that's, if, if only there was no social media back then, there Ooh. was no iPhones, you couldn't just, you know, take a selfie out. I wish I had a selfie of all those athletes that, you know, just over the span of that eight to 10 year period of just, you know, what, what, a, what an amazing experience. I have to look back. It's not always just about the running, but about the people and the interactions and the journey. And uh, I feel very grateful to have had uh, those memories. Just, just, so. so you decided that running 1500 meters was just so ridiculously easy that you do marathons <laughs> to have something of a challenge. Was that, was that the idea? Like why, why, I, why have something that you um, be done so quickly when you could suffer for longer? So <laughs> the thing was, is that I had spent so much of my early track career as a, as this kind of sprinter that never really did much. I wasn't fast enough, you know, and I'd, I'd spent so many years, you know, hammering out on a track and a pair of spikes in Southern California. And when I moved to Oregon, I, be, I shifted to middle distance running and to, and what I needed to work on was my endurance and my, my stamina. Mm-hmm. And so I, I learned all about sort of aerobic running, aerobic threshold running, which I had never done before as a sprinter or as a collegiate athlete. And I kind of like loved it. I thought, you know, wow, this is like a whole nother level of training or another, another, um, piece of training that I've never had before. And I just kind of gravitated to it because it was new and it was, I was something that I felt like it was like, it was gave me a lot of reward because I was improving. I was making huge gains. And so even as a middle distance runner, I, I, I was doing long runs. Um, I was doing threshold runs. I was training with a couple of marathoners, a couple of girls who had run like 232, 230, uh, in the marathon, 231, 232, they were, they were going to be going to the Olympic trials, um, that year. So I was doing some of their threshold runs with them. And then I would, then I would on other days do my track workout separate from them. So I had a little bit, I had a little taste of what that training was like. I was older because I came into distance running later in my career. And I really just wanted to know, I, I wanted to run well at a lot of different distances before, that window of time closed. And, um, I wanted, I, I was a personal, really a very personal endeavor that I wanted to run a good marathon. And, um, so in mm-hmm. 2002, uh, you know, we, in, uh, we picked New York city as my debut marathon, which is not the easiest course by far, much more difficult course than, than other, other, uh, other majors. But, um, we picked New York and I will tell you one of the reasons I did pick New York was it at that time, it was one of the only marathons that painted a blue line in the middle of the course. And since this, <laughs> I was, I was going to say like, are yeah. you moving to so, something where the ice yeah. is finally going to yeah, get in your exactly. way? Are you like, can't we just run around the track and stay in our I lanes know. and just do it more so time? You'll, you'll find it humorous <laughs> that we didn't really know if I could do it. Um, because I, I, <laughs> I didn't know if I could, what I, what if I go the wrong way? How am I going to know if there's a turn coming? Yeah. What, how am I going to do this? I can't see you know, so I ran a 10 mile race in, in April of that year as sort of a test to see if I could even run a road race, uh, honestly. And even though I'd already signed up to sign, to run, uh, I'd, I'd signed uh, a contract to sign, to run with, uh, to run New York. So my goal going into New York was to run 228, which is 540 per mile, mm-hmm. um, which was a lot of the training I had done was right around that pace, um, you know, for my long, my long threshold runs. And, you know, I remember looking at 
when the entries, you know, we had a new hall, all the women I'd be running against, including, you know, uh, some Margaret, you know, uh, the world champion was there that, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was a stacked field. It was, it was an mm-hmm. insanely stacked field as it always is. And I was, I was on the elite women's field and I, you know what I they say about myself, New York. If you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. Make, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was crazy. I thought, what have I got myself into? But I, um, I, I finished, long story short, I finished fifth on the day. I was the mm. first American female across the line, first American woman across the line. I was fifth overall on the day, but after drug testing results came back, uh-huh. there was a woman in front of me who uh, unfortunately was DQ'd, and so I was elevated to fourth. Fortunately or so, unfortunately, um, depending on your perspective. <laughs> my, my, I'm, totally yeah, ha- I, I'm, I, I'm totally happy she DQ'd, but <laughs> I root for you. <laughs> yeah, right. So... So I ended, and I ended up running two twenty seven ten, which mm-hmm. was which was faster than I had hoped. So I was really really excited. So I think you know the decision was a lot of people may have judged you know why leave the fifteen hundred so quickly? Why did you go to the five thousand? Why did you go to the marathon? And it, to me, I just felt like I had this really limited amount of time, and I really just wanted to know what my potential mm-hmm. was. Um, may maybe if I had stayed in the fifteen hundred, I would have run faster at fifteen hundred. You know that's po- possible, but it was sort of a personal um, endeavor, I think, to just to just have the experience. Uh, David Brown, our producer, was, was uh, yeah. you know singing your praises and, and saying how you you made this sort of amazing transition in the whole sort of viewpoint of of BAA from a from a disabled athlete sense to a power athlete. Yeah. Tell me about what that means. What what are what are the differences? And uh, sure. and maybe you can address because because some people may say to themselves, look. You know, we know how this works. There will be a term for something, and then that term starts to take on distasteful connotations. People view it negatively. So then people will have a new term, but then that term gets distasteful, and people just keep yeah. inventing new terms. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's what you have to do to have positive associations with things. Uh, but uh, but then there are other cases where it's like, no, there was a term that was really the wrong term, and then we got the right term. And it's not just that that uh, that yeah. taste is going to come in that the, that term is going to come into into bad odor and I will have to redo again. So tell me your thoughts on disabled para and other, and other things and, and what the change is and, and what it means and, and to what extent it's a matter of phrasing and euphemism and to what extent it's, uh, it's something even deeper than that. Yeah. So prior to my coming on board with the BAA, the program was called athletes with disabilities or AWD and with un- under that umbrella, AWD, included world-class wheelchair athletes, you know, uh, competitive athletes who are visually impaired, recreational athletes, charity runners, the whole continuum, right, Mm -hmm. of individuals were all sort of uh, grouped into this singular umbrella, AWD. And the way, you know, the, 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 what it didn't allow for is it doesn't allow us to recognize each athlete as them specifically and what they're here to do, what their motivation is for coming into the Boston Marathon. And I, I said, you know, when I started, came in, I started having, working with all the different, hearing from and communicating with all the different athletes who have been in our race over many, many years. And everybody has, well, I want this and I need this and I want this. And it just, it just occurred to me that it was like, I was never going to solve these issues or problems or address the needs of our, our athletes one at a time, that 
I had to address this in a, in a much in, by looking at the program as a whole and, and sort of defining why is this program here? Who is it for? What do we, what do we want to make available to our athletes and how can we do that in a way that represents the continuum of athletes, the, the range of athletic ability, as well as all the different motivations that athletes have for running the Boston Marathon. And realizing that I, I was going to have to come at this and thinking, we need a new infrastructure, we need a new framework for our program. And so part of that framework uh, that we have now adopted included a change in our terminology. And so even prior to my joining the BAA, we have to have I'm going to get, get to why we change it to para-athletics or para-athletes is because the eligibility for the program is in alignment with the Paralympic movement. The eligibility is that, you know, you can, cause if you yeah. go down the slippery slope of what is a disability and you look at the right. ADA and I hurt my knee and I have arthritis in my wrist and, you know, I have dizzy spells and you can, so is that who the program is really for? Mm-hmm. And not necessarily. So we have to have an eligibility for the program and we have to have an objective for why we have this program. And that eligibility is in, is in sync with the Paralympic movement in that we look to the, the eligible impairment types that have already been defined for us by the IPC. And so if we're going to be leading to that to say, this is our eligibility for this program, we can also look to that to say, why are we not adopting the language of the IPC? Why are we not adopting the terminology of the Paralympic movement? Because we want to ensure that we are, we don't need to recreate the wheel. We already have a model that we can look to and lean on and, and pull into this race and say, wait a minute, we need this new framework. We need the right language. And we also need, uh, we need to have both an opportunity for athletes to compete and be at the highest level of the sport, as well as come in and participate, whether they're coming in through a charity and they just want to be out Mm -hmm. there running on someone else's behalf. They want to finish in under six hours, you know, whatever that motivation. So you have these two extremes of the spectrum from the best uh, world-class wheelchair athlete in the world, or the best amputee athlete in the world. Uh, And on the other side, you have, um, like I said, a charity athlete or an athlete who's just, I'm so glad I qualified. I can't believe I'm here. This is amazing mm-hmm. because that continuum, you know, that's the continuum of our open division, right? If you think of all the runners who come to Boston, think of all the ways waves one through four, including our elite field, you've got the world-class athletes. You've got age groupers who are looking to place in their age group. You've got people who are just so grateful they qualified this time they tried and tried and tried and now they've gotten in and then you have people coming in and running for charities and for causes they believe in all of these this this broad range of athletic ability this broad range of motivation to be a part of this event and that same continuum needs to exist for our para-athletes and so it's a very long answer to your question but it's 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 why this new framework needed to be created is that we have to um make sure that we are, we are representing the continuum and have a place and, and move away from that sort of singular model. Um, you know, I just, I, I don't want to use this, maybe this isn't the best metaphor, but I'll use it anyway. When I started losing my vision as a 10 year old in Southern California, and eventually I had to change schools and I was bused out to a different County to go to school. Cause it was the only place, um, 
that had services for me. And so the bus mm -hmm. that would come and pick me up was the bus that had every student in the county that happened to have an impairment, whether it was vision, whether it was mm -hmm. an intellectual, that whether it didn't matter. And there we were all together on a bus and we were all different people with different personalities and different strengths and different challenges. And they really, we all had the common denominator was a disability, but I, I really don't think we should be grouping people disability can't be a common denominator, right? Because we have to look at the mm -hmm. individuals and the people. And um, we had to create that framework that we're not all getting on the same bus, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. We don't all need to be on the <laughs> same bus because a world-class athlete who is making their living as a, as a professional wheelchair athlete shouldn't be getting on the same bus as the athlete who's um, going to be running for a charity. And that doesn't mm -hmm. happen in the open division and that doesn't happen in the para-athlete program. So it's creating so that me, infrastructure. So, yeah. So tell me about the para-athlete program. What, what are, yeah. what are the groups? What are the groups? So we, we took the whole thing and it's got two strands. So we have, uh, under para-athletes, you have the para-athletics divisions. So this is the competitive strand. Uh, eligibility for this division is that you get at least your national classification. So classification is the system that's used in the Paralympic Games. It's how you are uh, grouped by type and in degree of your impairment. So within blindness and vision impairment, there are three classes, T11, 12, and 13. Look at our adapted program is very similar to what we had in place before. It's just been kind of rebranded. So we have what's called an adaptive program for runners. And that's athletes who, you know, I'm not really into competing. I don't want to get classified, but I do want to be in the, I'm going to, I want to qualify and be in the Boston Marathon and make sure I have the, you know, the support or accommodation that I may need to participate. So we have the adaptive program for runners and that eligibility is, is an athlete, a runner uh, who has either an intellectual, physical, or visual impairment. Um, we also have the duo team program. Most people are familiar with that uh, because of Dick and Rick White, who, or the, of course, the the founders of the duo team program way back when. So we have our duo team program, mm -hmm. and then we also have a hand cycle program for athletes who are not able to participate in a racing wheelchair. So mm -hmm. there's always questions, but I think what's been extremely helpful is that we have been we've really been more transparent in defining the eligibility for the program as a whole. And that's been, I think the problems that we had in the past is that it wasn't really clear if you were eligible or not. It didn't really say like, why is this program here? Who is it for? Oh, I have a disability. I hurt my knee. I can be in that program. Well, no, not exactly. So part of, part of the change in the, the shifting from AWD or athletes with disabilities to the para, to para athletes is is helping us define the program because as you, as you know, um, trying to define disability is a slippery slope. Um, and you have an ADA definition of disability, um, that's very different than the eligibility for the para-athlete program. So athletes who have, uh, other, other types of challenges or impairments that they feel, uh, they need accommodation for, they still have other ways to apply for entry. They can come in through a charity program. Um, there's other, other methods to apply to enter the race. And then if they feel that there's an accommodation that they need, they can reach out to us and we can address that need 
on a one by on a case by case basis. Well, look, this has been just such a delight spending time with you, Marla. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on Dangerous Vision. So many uh, fascinating stories, and um, and uh, so excited about the change yeah. we're uh, making happen in uh, in the world of uh, marathons, and and uh, excited for for Boston twenty twenty. It's going to be amazing. Thank you. I'm excited too. Uh, very excited, and uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I thought of you the other day, Randy, because I'd listened, listened to some of your previous shows and I heard you define how you came up with Dangerous Vision mm-hmm. uh, as the title, you know, and I, because I was kind of wondering what, what does that mean? Yeah. And I heard you say that it's, it, it, it's at, at points in your life, you, you kind of considered you have just enough, enough vision to be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that defines me very, very well. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought of that the other day as I was trying to navigate my way, uh, you know, uh, home and thought, thought I, I, as I nearly collide with a mailbox, right. um, <laughs> I thought, I, you know, I have just enough vision to be yeah. dangerous. <laughs> exciting. It's an exciting way to live, you know, so. danger, danger yeah, but danger also yeah. means excitement. And, uh, and uh, you brought a lot of excitement to the show today. So thanks. So, all right. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the dangerous vision podcast a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.